Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8-11 Welcome to Tell Me the Story with Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us for a weekly study of the Bible as we read verse by verse with the original context and languages at the forefront, illuminating the stories at hand. So for the past few months, we've been laboring in detail over the often complicated and frustrating story of the patriarch Abraham in the Bible. Surprisingly, Isaac's story is fleeting like a vanishing vapor. He shows up and almost instantly the text seems more concerned with his son Jacob than with Isaac himself. But in chapter 26, we get Isaac's one only real narrative for himself, and it turns out to be one of the most critical in the book of Genesis. So let's turn our scriptural ears on and get underway with Genesis chapter 26. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham, and Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech the king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt, Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. This entire chapter is a retelling of Abraham's dealings from chapter 20 and 21, but with Isaac as the focal character. This denial of Isaac receiving his own unique story is completely in line with the Bible's disinterested attitude toward Isaac. Don't mishear me, please. I am not saying the Bible doesn't like Isaac. It's not about feelings. I'm saying the Bible is uninterested in expounding upon Isaac as a character in this literature, in a similar vein to its disinterest in Enoch, the only character who we are told, over against many other characters in the early chapters of Genesis, walked with God. To make it more clear, if the Bible is interested in a character and goes into their backstory and all their dealings and adventures, it is probably because that character is no good. And they are written about to show their learning to do good or their punishment when they continuously fail to do good. And when I say do good, I mean to act correctly. If the Bible isn't interested in a character, then it says little to nothing about them because they are good. They are acting correctly. And we don't need to hear more, else we make them into some sort of hero and totally miss the point. Isaac as Abraham's son, has a lot riding on his shoulders as a character. We, as hearers of the stories, expect a lot out of him, as so much of Abraham's story was centered around the eventual birth of Isaac. Therefore, now that Abraham is gone, 
We have high expectations for his son to carry on the legacy and have more compelling stories told about him. And that just doesn't happen. Over the last couple of episodes, we heard stories about Isaac's wife being gotten for him, a story in which he was not involved. And in the next story, where we would expect to get to know Isaac as a character, he's mostly absent. And we instead learn about his sons, Jacob and Esau, and even get a story uh, which takes place in their adulthood. And this all occurs right after the death of Abraham. Isaac seems to just disappear after the very short story of his marriage to Rebecca. And like I said, that story was much more about Rebecca, Abraham's servant, and the people of Mesopotamia than it was even about Isaac. Now, in chapter 26, we are finally getting another story told about him. And it's not even his story. It's Abraham's story, retold with Isaac in Abraham's place. And that's important. It's not just a useless story, but it is comical that Isaac doesn't even get his own unique story. I mean, talk about living in your parents' shadow. Isaac is being supplanted by not even getting his own impressive story. He doesn't defeat any armies, he doesn't build any cities, and he doesn't sleep around having a bunch of children. His wife is gotten for him, his half-brother becomes the progenitor of twelve strong tribes, while Isaac seemingly disappears, abstaining from any exciting activity. And as we will hear later, one of his last acts before dying is him being swindled into giving away his fortune to the wrong kid. When you look at all of these stories from the top down, it really puts into perspective Isaac's name. Again, it means he laughs. We can laugh at Isaac as a character because he is so unimpressive. But what is brilliant about it all is the fact that he is the closest to perfect character we've been told about thus far. How is this so? He isn't concerned with his wealth and the prosperity of his house because he has faith in God and subsequently he listens to and trusts God more than any character worthy of their own story. Very well put, Rowdy. And the text goes even farther with its disinterest in building Isaac's narrative as an independent character. As we read in the text, it is because Abraham obeyed God that Isaac's progeny will be blessed. In other words, Isaac is rather inconsequential, which is the whole point that the text is making. Again, we have to view Isaac through his function from the onset of his appearance in the book of Genesis. He functions as the gift God granted to Abraham, but the emphasis is on God himself and not the gift. The gift is immaterial and cannot be owned by anyone but the scriptural deity. That is why Abraham was commanded to sacrifice Isaac a few chapters ago. The point was to test Abraham's loyalty to the scriptural God and not the gift that was given to him. Because any gift can be taken away should the tenant disobey the landlord. So if we keep this firmly in mind, Isaac's literary role in the book of Genesis becomes quite apparent. Verse 5 is also really the first mention of the noun Torah, which gets translated to law, but it more accurately means instruction. This is important because the instruction, the Torah is not something that is established at Mount Sinai, it is simply written down and codified there. 
Abraham received and correctly obeyed what St. Paul refers to as the spirit of the law before the letter of the law was available. Why is this important? Well, because simply put, Abraham didn't need for it to be written down. He heard it from God, or at times from messengers of God, and he submitted to the words and obeyed. The fact that it had to be written down and codified is in itself a bad thing, as St. Paul reminds us in Galatians that the law was added because of our iniquity, because of transgression. So we must be cognizant of this. The text is there because God has already spoken and everything he needed to say is already within the biblical corpus. It's there as our canonicos, our measuring stick. But again, the fact that we need this text is in itself a problem, but it's the only thing we have. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister, for he feared to say, My wife, thinking, Lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say, She is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, Lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. So again, the connection here to Genesis chapter 20 should be obvious, but I want to point out something that I find striking in the original Hebrew. That is the constant reminder of sojourning and God protecting the sojourner and expressly commanding his followers to do the same. Earlier in verse 3, God commands Isaac to sojourn in the land. And in verse 6, we learn that it is the land of Gerar. The word Gerar comes from the root Gerar, which means to drag away, but it also bears a striking resemblance to the Hebrew Ger or Gur, which means to sojourn. This is the root that Hagar, the sojourner, or stranger, gets her name. The text is intentionally reminding us of past stories as it builds upon and repeats old themes. The sojourner is precious. They can mean good news or bad news for you, such as a lowly peasant fleeing persecution, finding themselves in your land, seeking protection, or they could be an invading army. Either way, the outsider must be treated with hospitality and care. Exactly, and we can't forget how the Septuagint routinely renders the Philistines as the Alophili, literally meaning the other tribes. The Philistines are the quintessential outsiders in this sense with the original Hebrew Philistim coming from Philash or Palash, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And this word, of course, has the connotation of spreading out. So they are invaders. So the interactions between the patriarchs and these individuals is of supreme importance when approaching the text. And one note I have about Isaac's activity in this passage uh, comes from a dangerous temptation that I face and that I think many hearers of Scripture face. And that is that we can fall uh, into this trap of being a philosopher uh, or an egomaniac projecting themselves into the story uh, and being tempted to justify the actions of the characters we're hearing about if we identify with them or we like them for whatever reason. Uh, or 
if we're not justifying their actions, we begin to philosophize and complicate their actions. Uh, we've talked before about how Isaac is, in many ways, a perfect character, as far as Scripture is concerned. He acts correctly. He obeys God without question. However, here, he seems to follow in his father's footsteps a little bit, by fearing his own death and lying to this kingdom about the truth of his relationship with Rebekah, right? We all know the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor, or as many of the simpler translations put it, you shall not lie. Isaac is lying. Isaac is breaking the Ten Commandments, so he is not as perfect as we have been stating. Uh, so the trap is to philosophize and try to justify his actions through some convoluted means. So let's not waste a bunch of time pondering the morality uh, found in this story. It's just a story, and it's trying to teach a lesson. It's really straightforward. It is not good to lie especially out of a self-preservation mindset, plain and simple. Just because we like Isaac as a character doesn't mean we can excuse wrongdoing and protect our ears from the truth of the matter. Because if we do, then we will miss the lesson of this story. We have to hear it in its entirety, because as we will see later in the story, this event is not forgotten. It's a piece of the puzzle, and if you take one piece and cut it up into a lot of little tiny pieces and try to make sense of how that one piece works. You can't put the puzzle together anymore. You've removed material from the piece that must go into the puzzle. We cannot keep doing this. We have to hear the story. That's what our podcast is all about. We're here to tell you the story. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled the earth with the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it, for he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. A well, in biblical terms, is not just a place where there is water. But it's a symbol for something that gives life, because we humans need water to survive, right? Think of the passage in the New Testament about the woman at the well. It is also a symbol of community, as people groups often gather around water and protect it for the sake of their survival. Back in Genesis 21, before Abraham makes an oath with Abimelech at Beersheba, 
Abraham reproves Abimelech because some of his servants seized one of Abraham's wells. This is a small detail that I think we missed in our previous episode about that chapter because we didn't have the later parts of the story in mind. The treaty that comes uh, between Abraham and Abimelech is centered around Abraham ensuring that the Philistines know that this well belongs to him. He's protecting his capital, if you will. And I'll talk about this occurrence more later in this episode. Fast forward to chapter 26, which we are reading today. We hear that the Philistines stopped up the wells that Abraham had dug. This makes sense, as it seemed that before the oath between Abraham and Abimelech, there was some contention between these two peoples. However, now in Isaac's day, there is a famine in Canaan, and it seems foolish for those wells to have been closed. So keep this in mind as I go on a brief detour. This famine is something we should not overlook. We just heard that there was a famine, and that is why Isaac started moving. He was commanded by God not to go too far into Egypt, but to dwell amongst the Philistines in Gerar. He does just that, and what do you know? He sows seed and reaps in the same year a hundredfold and became rich, because Yahweh blessed him despite the famine. The text likewise makes clear that Isaac, just like his father, is essentially a monarch, He is the head of a massive, wealthy household. I don't think we appreciate this detail as much as we should. The way that Abraham and Isaac's prosperity is described is preposterous in light of how they are commanded to live. They act as shepherds and dwell in fields and sojourn amongst foreign nations and travel through barren wastelands, all as part of God's directive for them. For some perspective, just imagine the governor of your state. For Blaze and I, that's Laura Kelly. Imagine your governor packing up all the possessions of the state government and all the government employees into a few hundred RVs and semi-trucks and traveling down to Mexico City just to camp in the midst of the Mexican people for a year, to sojourn amongst them. This isn't a perfect analogy. I know that a state government is probably a little bit bigger than Isaac's household, but it hopefully puts it into perspective a little bit more. I mean, it's it's a really extreme idea. But anyway, back to the text. The Philistines are afraid of Isaac because of how mighty his household is and because of his success in reaping crops during a famine. And they ask him to depart from them. He does so, and he begins to dig up the wells that were stopped up by the locals after his father's death. Isaac puts in the work to dig the wells and get the water flowing again, and the shepherds of Gerar tell him that the water flowing from his hard work is actually theirs. And what does he do in response? He moves on. What did his father do? He threw a fit and nagged at Abimelech to make his people leave Abraham's wells alone, but not Isaac. People contend with him, and he leaves them be and moves on. Remember, his house is so mighty that the Philistines commanded him to leave them. Therefore, it is safe to assume that he could have totally decimated these people if a battle ensued over the well. But no, he gives it to them and moves on to dig another. Some other people contend with him over this second one, and he calls it sitna, which means hostility. And it's from the root satan, where we get Satan, the adversary. And we should keep that in mind uh, as we potentially come across that character and that concept uh, in later stories. So Isaac moves on until nobody contends with him for a well, and he calls the final well Rehobot, which means something like a broad place or a place with lots of room. And then Isaac says, for now the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. I don't want us to miss this. Isaac gets it. 
He understands God's expectations. It isn't about grasping and clinging to the blessings God gives you, worried that you might lose them. It isn't about how powerful and mighty you can be. Isaac knew that if he met contention, that contention was God's. He had no right to overpower his contenders. He knew that if there was contention, he was the problem, not his contenders. Therefore, he needed to keep moving on until God made room for him, because he is not special. I find this story so compellingly beautiful, not because it is particularly impressive or entertaining, but because it is scripturally satisfying. If one has been paying close attention to what they have been hearing throughout the scriptural story leading up to this moment, the satisfaction of a character showing mercy to their greedy neighbor and trusting God so wholeheartedly is incredibly moving, and it makes the story rich and deeply impactful. Just a surface-level reading makes Isaac look like a wimp. He is a wimp, but it's so much more than that, and that is the whole point. If we have been taking in the lessons of the stories leading up to this, and we know our place in creation and God's desire for human beings, then we know that Isaac being a wimp in this story is the best thing he could possibly be. He is denying victory for the well. He is denying his ego. He is denying his own survival and the preservation of his house because he trusts God. It's nonsense. It is the logical folly of the crucifixion. It is so impressive, but not for any of the reasons we are typically impressed by stories. We have to hear this story and hear it over and over again so that Isaac's obedience becomes our own obedience, inshallah. He is a nowhere man, quite literally. One might call him an anywhere man, perhaps. This is practically important because the scriptural God is not tied down to anything. There's no legitimate temple or statue for the deity. He is simply found in the words of the book that bears witness to his command for all humanity for all time. This is why you can have an ecclesia, literally in Greek, a summoned assembly for those called out literally anywhere because the word of God can be anywhere and testified by any and all people. Isaac doesn't need to fight for the water hole as is often the case with humanity. If his presence is causing trouble, he simply moves. Humans don't typically operate like this. To do so takes a considerable amount of self-control and diminished pride. We are innately territorial. But here Isaac is a stranger, and quite bluntly, he is a stranger anywhere he goes because his ancestral homeland is Mesopotamia, but God has commanded him to stay within the confines of the Syrian desert without relying on anything except for the protection of God himself. From there he went to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him that same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. I want to point this out. Uh, Yahweh, or the Lord in English, appeared to Isaac two times in this chapter. We should always be attentive to the occurrences of 
the Lord appeared to so-and-so, because it carries literary value. And I'm going to touch on its specific value in this story in a moment, but first let us look back. Before Abraham's death, the last time the Lord appeared to him was at the Oaks of Mamre before the angels went down to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. His reason for appearing to him in that story was to tell him again of his and Sarah's coming child of promise, Isaac, and to tell Abraham what he was planning to do to the two cities as an example, because Abraham himself was to be a mighty nation. And before that occurrence, the Lord appeared to Abram to give him his new name of Abraham and to institute the covenant of circumcision. All the other interactions between God and Abraham were through a messenger of Yahweh, or in a vision of a dream, or it just says, and the Lord said. These are the only two instances where it plainly states that the Lord appeared to Abraham before uh, his death. I don't want to get too speculative, but it seems that the Lord appears to characters in order to make covenants or to issue important promises, instructions, and warnings, at least up until this point in the story. And that is exactly what happens here. He appears to Isaac in order to remind him of the covenant he made with his father. My temptation originally when writing this script was to elaborate on how the two occurrences of this literary phenomenon, the Lord appeared, uh, now occurring with Isaac at the receiving end, are unique or special in some way because Isaac is acting correctly leading up to the interaction. But to be honest, the text doesn't do anything to support that idea. In fact, it does the opposite. I am falling into the trap of the human ego. That doesn't mean that Isaac didn't act correctly or that we need to scramble for some explanation. It's simple. God is not going to show special favor just because his servant does what they are supposed to do. No, he says to Isaac, I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. And back in verse 4 and 5, Yahweh says, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. God is robbing us and Isaac of the opportunity to attribute any of the blessings of his promise to Isaac's actions. We can learn from Isaac's obedient example but like with every character, including Christ, we cannot turn them into the hero. If I was in Isaac's shoes, I would feel vexed because I would want credit for my correct behavior rather than the blessing be attributed to my father. And that is the point. It's a test. I cannot act correctly in accordance with God's instruction for recognition or because I want daddy God's approval. I should act correctly because I should act correctly. End of story. Exactly. And this attitude gets brought up by friends of mine who are critics of Christianity and religion in general. For one, I often actually agree with them more than someone might expect because just because many traditions within Christianity practice something, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's scripturally sound. But I have had some pushback on the overwhelming scriptural focus towards caring for the needy neighbor. Many people say that Christians doing this are more so trying to win God's approval rather than sincerely helping them. And I think sometimes they do have a point. But I would argue that scripturally speaking, you are in big trouble 
if you are not sincere and are only being nice to your enemy so you don't have to face punishment from God. Something I've been learning more and more is that the more you take scripture in, metaphorically eating the scroll a la Ezekiel, the scriptural becomes manifest in your thoughts and your deeds. You begin to act scripturally informed rather than just being scripturally informed, right? You act it out. You walk the walk instead of just talking the talk. Now, I'm not saying I'm particularly there yet. I'm merely saying that I have seen a change in the way that I think and the way that I act from listening to Scripture over and over again. By the grace of God, I have a job where I can listen to music and podcasts and whatnot. I can do that all day. There are some days, not every day admittedly, but some where I listen to Scripture nonstop. You do this enough, and you start hearing Scripture in your dreams. So the reason why I'm bringing this up is because you start to instinctively act more scriptural without any thought about pleasing or displeasing God. You have just simply changed a behavior. Again, I'm not saying that I've reached this perfected state or anything like that, by no means, but I have seen a change, and I've seen changes in others who intensively listen to scripture over and over again over a period of time. That's the mindset those who love God should have, not merely obeying seemingly arbitrary commands, but literally changing your mind and your actions, right? It's matania, right? Repentance in the biblical sense. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzat, his advisor, and Fikol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you, and have done to you nothing but good, and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba, therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. This last part of the story should stand out to us if we remember Genesis 21. In Genesis 21, Abraham makes an oath with Abimelech also at Beersheba. And we pointed out in that episode that the name Beersheba means well of an oath. In that story, as I mentioned earlier, Abraham is insisting upon protecting his wells. Abimelech simply wishes to make a treaty which establishes that since he has treated Abraham with kindness, Abraham will treat him and his people with that same kindness. And Abraham agrees, but with the caveat that the wells remain solely Abraham's. He is protecting his capital in the agreement. Now, in this chapter, Isaac is not concerned with controlling anything or anybody. Abimelech comes to him because he and his people are afraid of Isaac, and most importantly, because they, quote-unquote, see plainly that the Lord has been with Isaac. So, what does Isaac do? Does he agree, as long as Abimelech gives over a certain number of women or slaves or wells or cattle? No, 
Isaac makes them a feast, and they share in the blessed practice of table fellowship. There is finally a sense of shalom. This is the way things should be. And it says it right there in verse 31. Isaac sent them on their way, and they walked from him beshalom. This event is one of forgiveness. Isaac lied to Abimelech and could have brought destruction onto him and his people because of a moment of selfishness. But when approached about it, he is honest and is allowed to dwell with them. He prospers greatly because of Yahweh, and the people fear him. So Abimelech sends him away out of fear. Then Abimelech finds him again and asks that they make an oath of peace between them because in their time of rumination, they saw that Yahweh had prospered Isaac's way. The two men uh, forgive each other for their wrongdoing toward one another, and after a night of fellowship and a morning of oath swearing, Isaac sends them away the same way Abimelech did to him, except now it is not out of fear, but in peace. This is an event dictated by correct behavior. This is the type of shalom I have said over and over again. We are expecting when we hear about new men or when we get imagery connecting us back to the garden or creation. It finally happened here with Isaac's behavior because Yahweh brought these men together and they both acted correctly. This would be a nice place to end the episode and the story in Genesis. But we all know humanity is much more complicated than that as evidenced in the next two verses. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Buri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemut, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. So we finish out the chapter by briefly following Esau's first marriages to Hittite women, and that becomes important. And so this is actually setting up an event that will happen later, when Esau will instead marry women from Ishmael's line after he perceives that his father Isaac was displeased with his marrying the Hittite women. Now, whether or not Isaac actually was displeased with it is another story for another time, but let us first be aware that this section is not a random departure. It's very clearly setting up future events that we must pay attention to. Esau is actually quite practical, too. He marries the women he is around. He doesn't need to go all the way to Mesopotamia to find a wife. We will see in the next few chapters that his brother Jacob, unfortunately, is not so practical. The first wife he gets is named Judith, which is extremely evocative because in Hebrew it denotes somebody from the historical province of Yehud. In Roman times, it was called Judea, which is ultimately, through various bastardizations of the French and the English language, we get the word Jew from. Bearing this name later on in the story is the Judah, who is the son of Jacob, and from him we have the tribe that David hails from. So we must understand its importance from that respect. Yehuda in Hebrew, comes from yada, which has the connotation of throwing something. In this context, it's likely referring to praise given to God, as we see in Genesis 29.35, where the link between Judah and the act of praising is firmly established. Judith is the daughter of Bari, which means my well, 
as in the well that makes up the word Beersheba, right? So there is some play uh, on the previous content of the passage. Next, he marries uh, Basimath, um, and this name has the connotation of something having a sweet smell like perfume or incense. She is the daughter of Elon, which refers to an oak tree. So it's interesting. It's a very interesting set of names, but nothing really evocative of anything negative so much as uh, Bethuel's family was, right? Um, the only thing that might stand out to us is the uh, reference to incense, you know, the sweet-smelling incense. But other than that, it's very tame, and it does seem um, very uh, very shepherdic in that sense, very, very much in, in line with the lifestyle of one in the Syrian desert. So really interesting. Um, but the fact that it, these names aren't uh, negative is interesting because Rebecca has a negative reaction to it. And the text says that it, that these Hittite women made life bitter for Isaac and Rebecca. But the the way that the Bible explores that later on is really, really interesting to the point where you start to question, okay, <laughs> you know, how much is Isaac really complicit in this? Um, so we'll get more into that next time. That's another story for another time. Um, but we'll have a chance to explore that within the next few episodes. So with that, at the end of the chapter, we'll call it there for today. Thank you so much for tuning in with us this week, and we'll see you again, same bat time, same bat channel. God bless you all. This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network.